You're listening to 1232, an audio epic produced by Rumblestump Entertainment. Chapter 7 They crossed the New Mexico state line at four in the afternoon. Rona wished she had picked another place to rendezvous with Taff. The more she thought about it, the more she believed she could not have chosen a worse place. She scolded herself for letting fatigue get the better of her, but there was nothing she could do about it now. Riding in the car had done nothing for her soreness. The re-injury to her ribs did not help either. The pain in her hand had finally subsided, but her face was still sore to the touch. Her mind was a hamster wheel of agitation, and sitting there thinking about it for almost nine hours drove her crazy. Outside of Roswell, on a back road, she couldn't stand it anymore. Flint, are you sleeping? You drive like a granny. Let me take it over from here. Fine. I could do with a little rest anyway, since I had to drive practically the whole way. Rona rolled her eyes. When they pulled over and switched places, she longed to stretch and yawn, but she knew that would be a terrible idea. Flint got out of the car and got back in on the passenger side, half asleep. As soon as he sat down, he curled up and closed his eyes. Driving was an arduous task, but Rona knew it was better to have to move at least a little. There was no way she could fall asleep at the wheel in this much pain. I'm sorry I shoved you, Rona. I, I didn't know you were already hurt that bad. Did you go to the doctor? Flint said this without opening his eyes. I thought you were asleep. Was all Rona could force herself to say. The chances of her ever forgiving Flint for anything were even slimmer now. It was just like her dad to open up to Flint and tell him everything, but keep her at a distance. They always had been two peas in a pod. Rona's thoughts troubled her. Rona didn't really get sad, but she could tell she was slipping, slipping into a bitter place in life. They drove south in silence, the air cooling as they approached the Capitan Mountains. She looked out in front of her at a golden summer sunset that cast the clouds in brilliant reds and oranges. She could already see the moon in full glory, ready to take the night watch. The sky looked like how she imagined the end of all things, peaceful, beautiful, and calm. If there is such a place at the end. She shook off her despair and tried to concentrate on something else other than death. The Coronet was not the ideal off-road vehicle, but it had to get them there. Once on the other side of the Capitan Mountains, Rona felt sure they could make it somewhere safe for the night. She would figure it out. She turned down an empty dirt road heading for White Oaks, the old New Mexico ghost town where she had told Taff to meet her. The only reason Rona remembered this route was because she had studied it, like all of Eclipse, as an alternate route for their routine trips to and from the Lincoln National Forest, where they sometimes trained. There were dozens of other ways to keep out of sight, but this car could not have managed them. The rough road kicked up a thick layer of dust. An expanse of grassland and sky lay out in front of her as she came around a curve facing a colorful backdrop of clouds, broken only by the dark shapes of the Patos Mountains. The red clouds changed to a soft, silvery blue, and the landscape was illuminated entirely by the full moon. 
Over to the east, thunderclouds in the distance raised their heads high into the stratosphere, glowing deep in their bowels from lightning that popped in the night sky. They were too far away to hear the thunder. They rattled over another cattle guard, and it jolted Flint awake. He blinked and rubbed his neck. Where are we? On the way to White Oaks. Oh, this is like the middle of nowhere. Are you sure we're on the right road? He gazed at a herd of black cattle around a windmill as they clattered past them. Yeah, we're close. So just stay with me and do what I tell you, all right? You'd rather fend for yourself with the FBI, and then I'll let you out right here. You won't have to walk far to Capitan. It's only 18 miles to the south. Rona said this, knowing they probably were not even remotely interested in Flint. It amused her, though, to see him so worked up about it, all the while knowing how much real trouble she was in. Don't worry about FBI? Since when did we... You never told me your side of the whole mess. Rona, you've got me mixed up in all this. All this time, I thought it was me. Rona interrupted him before he got hysterical. They want me because I work for Black Dagger. You wouldn't understand if I told you, so just drop it, okay? You work for Black Dagger? Oh, I can't believe this. This, this is too much. You work for... Oh, why didn't you tell me? You mean, you're a mercenary? You... Flint looked at Rona with a bewildered expression. He was actually speechless. Everything he knew about Black Dagger now raced through his mind as he tried to imagine his sister fitting into the picture. Rona didn't try to apologize for it. It rubbed her the wrong way how Flint looked down on her anyway. And now she felt the inexplicable urge to vindicate herself. I've only been with them for a little while. She failed to come up with anything more than that for the moment and gripped the steering wheel tightly out of pure frustration. So you know where Dad disappeared? I mean, do you know about that? Flynn's question was sincere. He was thinking less about Rona and more about his quest for the time being. If Rona knew anything, she had no right to keep that information from him. No, I didn't know Dad was connected to Black Dagger until you said that yesterday, I swear. Rona threw her hand up. Why do I feel like I'm on trial here? Rona wondered to herself. She didn't want to admit it, but if her dad had crossed Black Dagger, he was probably dead. And she would feel truly guilty for working for her father's killers. She subconsciously carried enough guilt for how out of control her life had become. This was just one more thing to add, and it somehow made everything else heavier. There's just no hope for me, is there? What's done is done. Can't change it. This is just the way I am. Well, Rona, I need you to say something. Tell me how you fit into all this. Look. Right now, Flint was willing to set aside his enmity against Rona. Start at the beginning. Tell me everything you know about Black Dagger. It might help me find Dad if you'll just... Please, for the love of Pete, help me out. If you care anything about Dad, even just a little, you'd at least do this for me. Flint implored her further by holding out his hand. Truce, okay? I'll keep my opinions to myself. Rona looked at him from the corner of her eye. Truce meant nothing to her, except perhaps that Flint might stop annoying her. At any rate, she no longer worked for Black Dagger. Not after Lewis took her money. She had no reason to keep any of their secrets now. All right, truce. Rona reached out 
and shook Flint's hand firmly. Flint turned to face her and folded his hands, eagerly leaning forward. Rona noticed him and chuckled. I didn't make it in the Marines, and I went on a bender, remember? And Dad bailed me out and gave me a plane ticket to- As if he needed a reason to party. Flint mumbled. Ah, 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 truce! Rona watched him squirm. It was satisfying to see him struggle to bite his tongue. Yeah, so the plane ticket to Albuquerque. I was training full-time, but I needed some cash. I... I did something pretty bad. Then I got kicked out because of some illegal substance abuse and a fight. Then there was this girl I put in the hospital. It's all muddy. So Black Dagger recruited me from the gym. I guess they were scouting there or something. They knew I was in legal trouble, so they promised to fix it up in court if I went to work for them. This was where the story got tricky. Basically, Flint, I found out what you know about Black Dagger. You know, about their weapons deals and all that. I was practically starving on the salary they gave me, so I was gonna quit. But then Boss Kellum said I could get in with the Eclipse and get a higher salary. Eclipse? What's Eclipse? That's, that's kind of corny. Flint was still paying close attention. He reached up and pushed his glasses higher on his nose. Yeah, kinda. They're the mercenaries that actually pull off the illegal stuff. The rest of Black Dagger is legit. So, anyway, I was going in for Eclipse. The team gets a cut of every deal they complete. They don't let you have it all at once. Like, they act as our bank, too. The whole tax thing, you know. Well, they couldn't let you have that money in a regular bank without causing suspicion. I see, I see. Uh, okay, keep going. Flint leaned closer. Commander Lewis runs Eclipse. He's an ex-IRA guy, but he's... He's got no conscience. On the surface, the boss is pretty patriotic. However, one of the last missions... Rona swallowed hard. ...was in Colombia, so if that tells you anything... <laughs> yeah, not such a patriot. Flint said, frowning. A pair of headlights approached. A diesel pickup pulling a rattling stock trailer nearly shoved Rona off the narrow dirt road and into the ditch. Slow down! Rednecks! Flint yelled. Those were his last words before the dust from the Caliche Road engulfed the convertible and threw him into a coughing fit. Rona cleared her throat and then continued. <clears throat> if what Dad was working on was top secret, it was probably Lewis that handled it. You mean this ruthless mercenary was the last person Dad would have been in contact with? Flint's voice raised in pitch. Yeah, probably. He's the ruthless mercenary that's throwing me under the bus. Lewis is moonlighting on Kellen. He has to be. Why else would he use me as a diversion? Of course. He's trying to throw suspicion on everyone but himself. Rona realized that the boss probably had no idea what Lewis was up to. And if that was the case, she was Lewis's only real threat. Lewis was probably cooking up the whole thing, just wanting to tie up loose ends. He wanted Taft to warn her. He wanted Taft to run so he would be sure to find her. Getting rid of her was the only way to keep the money. No one else even knew about it. <sighs> I wish I'd never snagged that stupid bracelet. He'd have nothing on me if I just kept my hands in my pocket. This guy must have either kidnapped Dad or killed him. Flint jerked his glasses off and began to vigorously rub the dust off of them with the tail of his shirt. 
Rona, what Dad was working on was huge. I mean, really, really significant. Rona didn't answer, and Flint took that as an invitation to explain further. You see, scientists speculate on whether there's a real possibility of interdimensional translation, or, well, you could call it time travel. According to ancient astronomy records I've studied, after sorting through the myths and all that, I've pinned down the approximate years of a meteor shower. It hit Earth in AD 800 to 830. A decent-sized meteor storm hit the northern hemisphere. Some fragments landed in North America and Britain. But I'm guessing most of them ended up in the Atlantic. Flint's words tumbled out. Now, Dad's research was on this material that the space exploration had found. These little shards were picked up on the moon, and their magnetic properties were unique and distinguishable from other similar particles, but the same as some found on Earth. Dad postulated it must have either come through another dimension somehow, or that it was from the explosion of an unidentified mass that's undiscovered in space so far. Quit babbling and get to the point, Flint, or else this truce is over. Rona was trying to listen, but was only catching about every other word. Okay, okay, okay. So in ancient times, there were these stones that supposedly had magical powers. They were indestructible. I know what I'm talking about here. My thesis was on the cultural and religious significance of these stones in ancient Europe. You're losing me there. (sighs) Rona sighed. Flint became more animated than usual and waved his hands around while he tried to explain. They were said to have brought plagues and made people disappear. I believe my magic stones and dad's particles are the same thing. The last time I talked to Dad, he told me the fragments were subtonic shards off of an exploding star. They're so unique because they have both biological and electromagnetic properties. And when strengthened by a whole range of other Earth-based elements, they can cause biological abnormalities on living organisms, accelerate growth, create clean energy, and even cause the slowing or warping of time, theoretically. According to Einstein's wormhole physics, there can be a gap in time caused by a significantly large gravitational pull. Approaching this gravitational sphere with the right number of anchor points, an object can actually be trapped in the time gap, or, well, possibly transported in time. The fragments have the potential to create, theoretically, a gravitational pull powerful enough to... And this means... Rona said, exhausted by Flynn's constant flapping. Chattery people always made her uneasy. And there were more important things than time machines and magic stones at the moment. What I'm trying to tell you is that if enough of these fragments were brought together, they would generate enough power to make nuclear power seem like a... a coal oil lantern. He struggled to find an accurate comparison. And they would have enough diverse use to cure or create many diseases, and theoretically send people back in time. Can you imagine being exiled not on Alcatraz, but in time? Whoever gets their hands on most of these fragments is going to rule the known universe. I mean, theoretically, in this research, Dad had located three likely locations where fragments could have been. He was the key to... to... Let's see. Theoretically. World domination? Rona asked, sarcasm dripping from the corners of her mouth. Yes! Flint jumped in his seat. Okay, genius, what would Dad want with something like this? If what you're telling me is anywhere near the reason he disappeared... Rona interjected. The dad she remembered would have never risked everything for a supposed magical rock, no matter how scientific the facts were. Honestly, I can only guess. When we last talked, he sounded sad and said something about regretting how things turned out between the three of us. He said if he could go back, he would. Clint's throat tightened. Choking back the tears, he continued. He would do it differently, Rona. He said he would have been a better father. 
Flint waited for this to hit Rona, like it had hit him. But his sister shrugged. You mean Dad wanted to go back in time and fix our family? Flint studied his hands, which sat aimlessly in his lap. I think, maybe, and to save Mom. Flint fidgeted. Rona bowed up, her hands clenching the steering wheel. A wave of anger swept over her, and in an impressive feat of self-control, Rona responded, hoping to drop the subject of their parents altogether. Dad was always selfish, just like Flint, she thought before she spoke. Give me a break, Flint. You expect me to believe this? Rona looked down her nose at Flint, who realized he had accidentally unbuckled his seatbelt and was jerking at it to get it back on. All I'm saying, Rona, is that... He tugged at the belt until it came free with a mighty yank. If, if Lewis is the guy you say he is, and Black Dagger is really what you say it is, then it makes him responsible for whatever happened to Dad. He fumbled with the buckle of the seatbelt. And I'm going to find that out. And we're... Uh, dear! Rona saw it too, but she could not prevent the inevitable collision. Get down! She yelled at Flint, who was already doubled over on the floorboard. Instead of slamming on the brakes or swerving, which would have flipped the vehicle, she stomped the gas pedal. They hit the buck broadside, going about 60 miles per hour. It rolled up onto the hood and crashed into the windshield, landing halfway across the back seat, with its antlers embedded in the seat itself, tearing the canvas top. Rona lost control and drifted across the Caliche Road. The vehicle fishtailed. Her vision, impaired by the blood and broken glass, she tried to keep them from flipping. She flew into a two-foot-deep ditch, slamming them both into the front of the car. They were covered in blood and glass, shaking from shock. Oh, my. We, we could have been killed. Right here, by a, a deer. Flint's eyes were as big as saucers as he rose from the floor. Rona couldn't believe she hadn't even been scratched. She knew she saw the buck's head coming right toward her through the windshield. I think we just cheated death, she said breathlessly, looking over the deer's twitching hind legs at Flint's face. He looked like someone had splattered paint all over him and then threw glitter on him. Rona tried not to, but she couldn't help from laughing. Flint blinked, dazed, looking from the deer to Rona. <laughs> you think Mr. Galloway wants to buy this thing now? The thought of that lawyer's face if he saw what the car looked like at that moment, covered in dirt, blood, and glass, <laughs> made him laugh, too. <gasps> this is so weird, Rona said between gasps for air, holding her ribs. I know, this isn't really that funny. Flint replied before he lost himself in another wave of laughter. This could have happened last night, but it wouldn't have been as funny. <laughs> Rona commented, trying to catch her breath. It, it kind of makes you feel invincible. I mean, we should not have lived through this. Flint chuckled as he searched for something to get the glass off of his seat. <sighs> not bad for an archaeologist turned fugitive. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Saved by the treacherous hand of fate. Flint said this in a theatrical voice as he stood up in the seat. Rona snickered at his performance. <laughs> they both lost themselves to laughter. 
We're going to take just a minute to hear from our awesome sponsors who make this show possible. This episode of 1232 is sponsored in part by Oasis Family Media and its family of companies including Oasis Audio, Enclave Publishing, and Sky Turtle Press. Publishers of the forthcoming epic Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. Rendered in modern prose by Rebecca K. Reynolds and illustrated by Justin Girard. For more information, visit fairyqueen.com. That's fairyqueen.com. Or find the link in the description below. Hello, 1232 listeners. This is Callie Sue, and I'm excited to tell you about Dramafy, the ultimate platform for creators and fans of audio dramas. With oodles of genres, hundreds of shows, and thousands of episodes, Dramafy is your go-to streaming service exclusively for family-friendly audio dramas. Whether you're a devoted listener or a creator of a family-friendly masterpiece, Dramafy has something for you. And guess what, 1232 listeners? You can now enjoy 1232 on Dramafy. Just go to dramafy.com forward slash 1232. That's D-R-A-M-A-F-Y dot com slash 1232 and get started for free. Happy listening. 1232 is sponsored by Phil Bob Borman Art, a nationally collected skyscape artist mastering the shape and color of western skies and towering cloudscapes, inspiring viewers to look up at the glory of God all around us. Phil Bob Borman is represented by Insight Gallery, Fredericksburg, Texas, Legacy Gallery, Scottsdale, Arizona, Caudry Gallery in Whitefish, Montana, and the Museum of Western Art. Contact for available paintings or commissions at philbobbormanfineart.com. And now, back to the show. Taft drove out of the small town of Carrizozo on the highway to Corona and ran alongside the railroad tracks. As he drove, the sun sank behind him, warming the high desert air with lavish colors scattered over the mountains. He took the White Oaks turn at the same time a train rolled across the road. He stopped the jeep and killed the engine to save fuel. One by one, the rail cars clacked in front of him. He recalled his first encounter with the train. Nothing made sense then, in the beginning, when Lewis and Eclipse were taking him back to Black Dagger as a prisoner. Prisoner was the wrong word. It was more like a slave. The mystery to him had always been how he had suddenly come here. Looking back, he realized that the shock of arriving had thrown him off guard. If it had not been for that, Lewis would not be alive today. One minute, he had been in a rage, tracking his brother down to kill him for jeopardizing his life and livelihood. That reality seemed so far away now. But he remembered a flash of light and then the feel of New Mexico's soil underneath him as he landed painfully on his side. The voice he heard was not his brother's, but Lewis. Taft looked down at his hands and then up at the moon. The moon had been full at home the night before he left too. It seemed strange how the same moon and the same sun could have shined in both his old world and this one. He sighed, staring at the train. Taft remembered more. He had barely gotten up before they came at him. All he knew in the moment was that they were trying to kill him. And he had fought them all until the Irishman shot him in the leg. Gagged and handcuffed, they had taken him to the Black Dagger complex. 
Instead of terminating him, they made him an asset. He was a natural-born soldier. With nowhere else to go, he stayed, knowing he had never been free to leave. And over time, in the strange new world, he grew accustomed to it, and his captivity became comfortable. The cage started to feel like home. Before he met Pastor Reuben, he lived to work. Peace only gave him time to think, and his thoughts were too painful to endure. Before he gave his life to Jesus Christ, Taff ate, slept, and breathed hate and revenge. He had given up trying to return home until he read the words of Christ in Luke 18, 27. What is impossible with men is possible with God. Since that moment, some inexplicable hope had grown in him that somehow he would get the chance to make it right with his brother before he died. If he did nothing more on this earth, he had to let his brother know he forgave him. He had to ask for forgiveness. The last train car passed and the crossing bar was raised. Taft made his way toward the hills where White Oak sat abandoned by all but a few hippies, nomads, and Western gangsters, not wanting to be found at the No Scum Allowed Saloon. He drove down the one street, slowly, to have a look around. The best place to wait for Rona would be behind the dumpsters at the edge of town, where the pavement ended and the Caliche dirt road began. As he rolled past the saloon, the hairs on the back of his neck rose. He was being watched. He drove on by, and glanced in his rearview mirror. It was only for a second, but he was sure he saw Lewis standing outside the saloon. How did he find me? Taff was certain Reuben would not have told him, no matter what threats had been made. As he drove out of town and onto the unpaved road, he slowed down. Glancing back again, he saw a truck come onto the street behind him. He went on past the dumpster as if he were going further, and watched the headlights follow him, then disappear. Taft didn't know what to make of that. The damage had been done, though, because Lewis was somewhere on the road between him and his rendezvous point. If he stopped, Lewis might catch him, and he could not turn around and go back. The only thing to do was to gain enough distance to duck off on a side road and lose him. Taft sped up leaving a thick cloud of white dust rising in his wake. As he drove, he prayed, asking for the hand of God to intervene, somehow.
through silence I can't translate words that just aren't there Seems my tongue's tied in a knot Ambitions have all, all been locked Now there's a tangled mess, a hidden key somewhere
You've been listening to episode 7 of 1232, produced by Rumble Stump Entertainment. Written by Callie Sue and Cheyenne Bell. Narrated by Callie Sue. Today's voice talents include Robin Cage as Rona Thatcher, Matt Burke as Taff, and Corey Keller as Flint Thatcher. This episode was mixed and engineered by Jet Black. Edited by Casey Caballero, Caballero Sounds. Music by Callie Sue and Jet Black. Featuring James Dillon, Millie Scott, Zach Bryant, and Jeff Spearco, performing Static Line. Mastered by Zach Bryant, Nine Moon Mastering. Cover art by Niall C. Grant. This episode was made possible by our generous and incredible backers through Kickstarter. You know who you are. To our knights, our bards, our Welsh bowmen, wizards, and chieftains, thank you. Continue the adventure in episode 8. <laughs>